All right, so let's get into this week's interview. This week's interview with Annika Lucas is one of the most powerful episodes that we've ever recorded for Chitheads. It's very challenging and heartbreaking in some parts because Annika Lucas has an incredible story that started when she was sold into sex trafficking by her mother at the age of six. She has witnessed profound trauma as a result of this experience and has just an incredibly inspiring story of healing to share with all of us that we all can learn from. We talk a lot about trauma, healing, emotion, affect, moving toward healing through feeling, getting to chit from shit, a lot of really great um, topics that I think a lot of listeners are going to really um, be inspired by. So I, I really hope you enjoy this episode. And uh, please, if you do enjoy the episode, reach out. You can leave a comment in the comments section on the, the, the podcast page. So without any further ado, here's Annika Lucas. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Annika Lucas. Annika Lucas founded Liberation Prison Yoga in 2014. Aside from her duties as executive director, Annika trains new volunteer instructors on site. She also teaches regularly at several of the eight facilities where LPY has weekly programs. She conducts trainings and workshops for yoga instructors, mental health professionals, and NYC, DOC, and DOP employees to bring yoga and mindfulness into work with traumatized populations. Annika is regularly invited to speak at conferences and universities about the subject of trauma, incarceration, and sex trafficking. In 2013, Annika started two groups at the women's jail at Rikers Island for survivors of sex trafficking. Annika herself experienced and witnessed some of the worst atrocities known to humankind before she reached the age of 12. Her background, the obstacles she overcame, and the insights she received into the nature of the human psyche on her journey to health are an inspiration to students inside and outside of prisons and audiences around the world. And we're going to talk about some of that today. The continued healing she receives from her work reminds her that human connection is the agent for change in teacher and student, provider and client. In 2008, Annika created a 500-hour Yoga Alliance RYT program for a New York City-based yoga studio. From 2011 to 2014, Annika was director of Prison Yoga Project New York. She graduated from the screenwriting program at AFI in 1993, published a novel in her home country, Belgium, and wrote many articles about yoga and trauma. She has been working on a book about her childhood previewed in an article about her work in the prisons. So with that, Annika, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Sounds so, very nice when you read that bio. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a beautiful bio. It's a beautiful bio. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about some of the things that uh, come up actually in that bio. And um, one of the... Um, one of something that I had the pleasure of listening to yesterday was your recent podcast interview with Jay Brown, which was a really incredible and just very um, challenging but beautiful interview. And and props to both of you for being so honest and open in that interview. And I know you really went a lot into um, your history and specifically the history of abuse that has kind of informed your whole spiritual and and life trajectory. And I know we had talked about not wanting to get too much into the details and, and definitely um, advising people if they want to learn more to go to Jay Brown's podcast and to listen to that. But I'm wondering if just to start, maybe you want to do kind of an abridged version of, of that story so that the listeners can, uh, can be positioned for what we're going to talk about soon. 
Well, thank you, yes. Um, I was um, raised by a single mother who was mentally ill mm -hmm. and exposed me to abuse very early on and then sold me into what was a network of pedophiles um, who were very high-profile people in mm. Europe, uh, politicians, businessmen, and aristocrats, mm. who um, also killed children mm. when they were, when the children became, I guess, a threat to the silence that was necessary to keep. So I survived in those circumstances for six years mm. and then I was rescued by someone from the inside I was given these very precise instructions by which to live and I did follow those instructions which is why I'm in New York and it's why I didn't end up in prostitution it's mm. why I didn't end up an addict um, I could have died another hundred times just not following those instructions. So I've finally moved off the script mm -hmm. speaking about it. Of course, I was also told never to speak about any of this mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, growing into my own. Mm. So there's, there's I, what I hear you saying is that once you sort of transcended the, the script as in being the script that he gave you, yes. the man who rescued you, yes. after you stopped living in accordance with that um, prescription for life, yes. all of a sudden this is when you really started the process of healing. Of empowering myself, mm. you know, and we all have that journey to make away yeah. from our parents. Yeah. And he was a parental figure. He was only 20 years old. Wow. And I was only 10. But because of his positioning mm. and because of what he meant to me, he became um, a very important, and he was at the time the only parental figure right. that I was attached to. Right. So the love that I felt for this person and the love he felt for me, you know, and the, 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 the tragic love mm. that um, was pedophilistic and it was mixed with all the abuse that um, had his parents had um, had 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 um, administered to him, and he basically repeated in all of it, and then I, I think, repeated it for the rest of his life. Really? Yeah. Mm. So, do you, do you have you did you ever see him after no. you left? Never. No. And as far as you know, he's not alive. I know he's not alive mm. because he became. Belgian public enemy number one oh, wow. sometime later and um, was killed basically uh, to go straight into it he made a negoti he negotiated for my life with the unofficial boss of that mm. network who was a cabinet minister in Belgium mm. and died basically getting caught at doing something for that politician 15 years later um, that you know still in Belgium the two are still not associated as having been in on this together mm -hmm. 
Wow. Because of course they wouldn't have been conne been connected, a gangster connected to a politician, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, we <laughs> all have. Happen? <laughs> it doesn't happen, or you don't hope, or you don't think it would happen. I mean, political corruption is something that you know it can easy to get. It can be easy to get conspiracy theoretical about, yeah. but I mean, the, your story is really a testament to the fact that this kind of corruption is not alien to Western governments. The conspiracy theories, I know that people like uh, conspiracy theories, and but I found them, you know, certainly when it comes to the scandals in Belgium, they're all true. Mm -hmm. My story connects to almost all of the scandals that are unsolved, you know, yeah. in Belgium. And here, too, in the United States, I mean, I... I have a different point of view. You know, what makes more sense to me, for example, uh, what happened in 9-11, makes more sense to me that, I mean, there are so many questions that are unanswered mm -hmm. in what happened there, yeah. that it wasn't just the story of these terrorists coming to no. destroy yeah. the, the World Tower, Yeah, uh, that there was more to it. Yeah. And we're not really getting that information, but there are people out there that are called conspiracy theorists that have different information. Yeah. Did you see that film Zeitgeist? I'm not sure. It's a, it's, it's a movie about, uh, it's a movie basically about 9-11. And it first starts about, it starts out with this sort of like religious, um, the archetypes of religious metaphor, and then it moves into kind of this conspiracy theory about 9-11. But anyway, it reminds me, what you say reminds me of that, so I thought maybe you had seen it. I saw a documentary that was basically about architects and engineers mm. who were all being interviewed and all said the same thing. Really? That it's just not possible. Right, right, because the way that the buildings fell wouldn't have been possible. Yes, and then wow. there was this other building that also fell. There was no plane. Yeah. That went in there. So they would have had to have had explosions. Explosions, in them. yeah. That's so wild. Oof. Well, <laughs> to get back on uh, the story here, then, mm -hmm. you know, when you, were, when, when you were discussing in the interview with Jay Brown um, uh, this specific event where you were in a room and you were there for many hours and, and men would come in and out, you described... Um, you described the 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 men not in a way that was, you know, vilifying as 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 anyone who's gone through something um, that like you have has every right to do to 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 vilify in a as a way of you know or at least as part of the trajectory of healing of you know distancing, but you really humanize them in this very specific way that I think is really a nice sort of segue into a deeper conversation about. Um, the deeper spiritual aspects of um, of what we're doing with yoga practice, and and that is, you mentioned them as having a false idea of liberation. That when they were in the context of this, you know, circuit of 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 um, of, of abuse, that they felt free, and that they were seeking out some kind of feeling of being free, being free to be who they really were being free outside, you know, the constraints of social normality, whatever it was, it was it was seeking this sort of transcendence from whatever they were experiencing. And and we and when you said that about these particular men, it made me see what you were it, it felt very humanizing in that we can all understand the compulsion 
to want to be liberated. I mean, so much yoga philosophy is about how we transcend suffering, how we transcend our own ignorance. And so, so I, I would love for you to just talk a little bit about that. You know, how does this, um, this natural and universal um, desire for liberation get, you know, um, get contorted into this particular um, um, corrupted way. Thank you. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of saying it. And um, yes, and I, I just did a workshop um, this weekend for uh, teachers, and and I, I I like to say it's like working on a mathematical theory, mm-hmm. and um, everything fits into it. And you just said it. Um, it is a universal desire to be liberated because we are. Uh, living with constraints, whatever they are. We're not free. So um, some of us, maybe after enough rounds, want to find liberation through um, yoga and yoga practices, um, knowing that the hard way is the only way. Mm -hmm. And um, psychologically speaking, it's the same, that we have to look at unflinchingly at what happened to us in order to be li- liberated from these um, painful things that happened to us in the past. Um, <clears throat> and my journey is that, is from being completely imprisoned, even though I was uh, um, liberated from the network itself, I was completely in the prison of my my mind, uh, the prison of those instructions which I which I followed religiously, and very little freedom because even though I was physically safe, which was part of those instructions, I still well I wasn't that safe. I was basically a teenager on mm. my own. Yeah. So. Um, I wasn't really that safe, but I, I did have um, mental repetitions of the things that had impacted me the most mm. in the abuse. Mm. And what had impacted me the most was the betrayal. Mm. And this a gangster, the 20-year-old gangster, became emotionally more poignant than my mother because he seemed to care about me. And he ended up, it seems like he cared more Mm -hmm. about me than my mother did. He also reflected more about my true self to me than my mother ever had. And so as far as attachment and as far as um, my attachment to my mother because she didn't love me ever, it was sort of easier Does that make sense? Mm. Whereas this person was so passionate and so intelligent and so honest at certain times and really reflecting things about me that were important, that were true, that were positive. So there was a mirror there that I'd never had. Mm. And it was very nurturing. But then the abuse um, involved severe betrayal. And he was the one who steered me away from my mother, my attachment to my mother, saying Mm. that she was no good and basically getting me to see what she was doing. 
which was very painful because she was the only person I had. Yeah. So you were still seeing her at this time while you were. She was put driving me over there. Oh. And picking me back up. She was the, my pimp. Oh my god. So I was yeah I was very much uh, attached to the hip. Um, I was going to school during this time. She would switch and take me, you know, switch. We, we'd be just in the house and there'd be a sign, a, um, eye contact or something. I knew that I had to get ready. And then I had to get myself dressed and ready and, and usually with some tension. Mm -hmm. There's... She would be tense. And did you ever tell her you didn't want to go? I did. Mm. I did tell her once that I wasn't going, and I just sat, stayed put, and she dragged me by my hair. Mm. So her destructive power in terms of the self-hatred that was projected onto me, her daughter, as an extension of herself was the most powerful thing that drove her. That she even went behind the backs of the bosses in the network that she was always placating the men. She even went behind their backs to try to destroy me. That was really her most powerful drive. That woman's sickness as women being slaves in society, that she had that slave mentality very strongly. Um, And unfortunately, that becomes envy for women, you know. Mm. So uh, a woman is envious of a woman who, who seems more empowered. Mm. And, she, and that comes from a place of disempowerment. Yes. Mm. So she was involved. She met this gangster as well. I call him the gangster. He was 20, she was in her 30s, 35 at the time. He did what his parents did to him. He was raped by both his parents separately. Mm. His father found him in bed with his mother. Oh. His father ran after him, wanted to kill him as if he had betrayed him. And he stabbed him instead and maimed him, which resulted in him walking with a slight limp. Mm. This is what he did to me. He slept with my mother in front of me in the worst possible way. After I had been completely drawn in and after I had been completely opened and after he had protected me for a long time not touched me for a long time and then uh, the sexualization of it and then his need for me to completely give myself so that it was a soul issue it wasn't just me doing my job so repeated and was that, that, and, that betrayal now that was something that I remember you brought up in, in the interviews that you said he wanted your soul yeah. now is that really like the crux of why the abuse was so more, so much deeper with regards to him because he he didn't just want your he wasn't just there taking your body he was actually taking something much deeper from you yeah mm. yeah 
yeah, I had nothing left. Mm. So I was completely attached, completely dependent for that time, for that year. So my individualism, which is the thing that had drawn him to me to begin with, was gone. I became his slave. And so he repeated everything. He repeated not only that betrayal of sleeping with my mother in front of me, but he also betrayed, the st repeated the stabbing. And, you know, I'm, again, I was stabbed in the same place that his father had stabbed him. Mm. So I work with that in yoga, but I didn't limp. That was the difference. Wait, he stabbed you in the same place? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he repeated everything. And finally, when I was going to be killed, I defied him again. Then it was beyond. No, I had nothing to expect from him anymore. The dependence was gone. And I defied him so strongly, that's what made him change his mind. Mm, mm, mm. And was, that, was this before or after he started to... Um, um, plot your escape, so to speak, or, or help you to escape? Well, this is, I briefly mentioned this in uh, the interview with Jay, that I defied him the moment I was going to be tortured, mm -hmm. to be killed, and that I was being tortured, and I didn't know that he was negotiating for my life with this politician at this time. Mm -hmm. And then he went to work for this politician in return. Mm. So, so it's safe to say then that, you know, really going back to sort of something you said um, about following his prescriptions or his suggestions, and really it was until you let those go that you ceased being subjugated in the same kind of way. Even though he helped you, you were still subservient to that structure of power and to that love, to yeah. the love that I, the love and the loyalty that mm -hmm. I felt as a child for the person that I was dependent on for my survival. Yeah. Because that lifeline is not, you know, that's our psychology. Yeah. Is the lifeline that we all have to our parents. Mm -hmm. Just that my parents, my parental figures were these people. So I was repeating, in some way or other, emotionally, I was repeating uh, from one side or the other side. You know, I made some people feel that betrayal. I, I, I betrayed some people, some boyfriends, you know, in the way that made them feel just as devastated as I felt. Mm. Um, they were adults. Mm -hmm. So that's a difference. Yeah. So what was then, that's a good sort of segue, because so after you moved out of, or what was the, 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 the period following when you actually left this circuit when, what was the structure of your trauma? Like you were obviously traumatized before the, 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 the moment of healing began or the seed of healing was planted. What was that structure of trauma like for you? Was it, was it repressing the memories? You know, what was Definitely. the character of it like? Yes, well, all the memories were repressed and it was also specifically told to forget everything and mm -hmm. everyone. So, and, and anyway, it's not something that I could have lived with. Yeah. Uh, could have held. Um, and following blindly, of course, following those instructions and 
emotionally really reliving um, that betrayal, either reliving it from putting myself in situations with just narcissistic individuals who, mm-hmm. who I would then feel a similar attachment to. Right. But it's all little aspects, never the whole full picture. Mm. But definitely very um, stuck in those patterns. Yeah. And that uh, breaking down of that connection, that dependence was very gradual, of course. And I still have love for this person, you know? I still... I, I think perhaps part of the reason why I want to find understanding mm. for people who kill is because of this, this, this killer who really got, got to me. Yeah. Uh, because he did kill a lot of people in his life. Mm. And um, I understand it. I was given something else that in the first years of my life I had a caretaker who loved me which gave me that rebelliousness. Mm. So he recognized that rebelliousness, that integrity or that courage, but he never was able to live that himself. Mm. And so he went the other way very much and lived that life of crime which then killed him. And I do... um, My understanding does reach so far because... I received these similar things. I also was made to do similar things that he did. And so I really have experienced the mindset of a killer, what makes someone into a killer. Mm. And so I think for my own purpose of being able to understand. Yeah. So that, yes, I found that all those men, and he included by the, these unconscious repetitions that we all fall into on some subtle level or on a more gross level, that it's a physical repetition. Yeah. It's always being played out on one side or the other side. It's always being played out, either the re-victimization where we get hurt in the same way and we just didn't see it coming but yeah. because it's a repetition, or we feel the freedom, the temporary freedom of the person on the other side, replaying um, the rejection, replaying whatever it is, the things that hurt us when we were small. We get to be on the other side of that coin in our, when I was hurting and betraying Mm -hmm. those men when I was in my early 20s. you know, I felt maybe for a moment I felt free from this constant mm. pressure mm. of mm. all this helplessness and all this powerlessness yeah. that I was constantly subjugated to. Yeah, that's so interesting what you're saying because what, what I, I don't think I've ever heard it quite articulated that way in that, in that when you are a victim of abuse and, and subjugation in the, in the kind of very intense way and even not quite as intense ways that many people are, you associate power, what you're saying, you associate freedom with being on the other side of that relationship. Yes. Which is so interesting, which would explain why people seek out like powerful positions because they see freedom in that space. Absolutely. Because when you're being abused, the first thing of trauma is that you feel powerless. Mm-hmm. 
that you are helpless, powerless over what is happening to you. That is why it's overwhelming because you can't do anything about it. Yeah. And so this feeling is extremely uncomfortable aside from whatever else may happen, you know, with the physical abuse, the the beatings and the rapes. I always felt that was not the most important thing, even though I was definitely affected by it. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't the most important thing I was affected by. What most affected me was what was being transferred psychically, carrying this person's weight around in this moment and feeling like I'm a whore or feeling that I'm just dirty and worthless piece of shit. That was what was really hard. Yeah. That's what they wanted me to feel because that's what this person couldn't hold inside himself. Mm-hmm. Sort of this transfer of shame that doesn't really belong with anyone. Yeah. But that I then got the, got the feel and live most of my life with this tremendous guilt complex. Not just by having carried these various shameful things around for other people, but also because of what I was made to do with the harmful things I was made to do, which were perhaps more effective in really getting me to feel that I'm bad, I'm evil, I am guilty, I am just like them. And this fear of being not innocent, as we are born innocent, we all are born innocent, mm-hmm. and this fear, I'm not innocent, that innocence of a newborn, that is the freedom that we seek. Mm-hmm. And as we grow up, we lose it. Yeah. We, we, we live in this world. Yeah. And we're sub, subject to its laws. And yeah. there's, there's this fear that, that sets in yeah. everybody. We wouldn't be able to be in our bodies if we weren't experience some fear to hold us here in this yeah. vibrational realm. So we all have it. We want to align ourselves with love and courage and all the things, all the good things that bring us back, draw us back to truth. But we all have the fear to grapple with. Yeah. And in the ultimate sense, that is this fear that we are not this innocent being, mm. that we truly are. Yeah. In the end, we all are that true innocent being. But to get back through the nitty-gritty <laughs> of how we lost that sense that we were innocent. That's the work. Yeah. And that's really difficult to do. And so that shame is what keeps people outside of themselves, mm-hmm. not able to go back. And the more harm you do, the harder it is. Because then you first... Someone who's committed a lot of harm, in a way, it's easy to be a victim. I mean, don't, don't take that the wrong way, though. I don't want anyone <laughs> to take that the wrong way. It's not easy to be made to feel helpless. But it's easier to feel that you're the victim why so many people repeat that role later on very effectively, in, you know, so, as well in the yoga world with you know, um, false gurus who yeah. abuse people. Um, it's easier to play the role of the victim because it doesn't have the additional weight of having to face what you did. Mm-hmm. To play the victim role, you, to a certain degree, abnegate responsibility for your own actions. I'm not talking about the law now, because, of course, someone who takes a role of a teacher and of a guru, whatever, has responsibility. So we're talking not about laws. That's just the law. You take responsibility of a 
politician, you have a service to perform. And if you don't perform it and you abuse people instead, then you're not fit for your role. Mm -hmm. But um, meanwhile, on the other side of the coin of that power dynamic, people who don't uh, want to take full responsibility for their actions, people who have never really uh, explored their dark side, mm -hmm. will stay in the victim role more easily because it is easier. When you've done a lot of harm, to look at what you've done and to feel the pain of what you've done, to feel the guilt, it's very hard. Yeah. Very difficult. So what was the, the seed that was planted in your own life that sort of started you on the path of not, or at least being conscious of the cycle and then taking steps to begin the healing process, which is a different, obviously a different trajectory. So what is the kind of, what's the structure of that? You know, we, you're talking about this structure of, of transferring pain and suffering onto another person and sort of reversing the role that you had been initially harmed in and that just sort of go on, goes on ad infinitum. How do you break that? Like, what is the process of breaking that cycle? Well, I should say that I had an experience of truth. I had a break. Mm. And I left my body. Mm. I was dying. I experienced the reversal of the senses. I was very happy to go. <laughs> when was this? What was the, what was the context was of this? This was in the context of after being tortured. Yeah. Which actually... Was pretty far gone. I was pretty far you gone. You were close. I was very yeah. close. And I was rescued, but that wasn't just... I wasn't just taken out. So I had to perform an exit ritual, which was to cause the greatest harm. In order to leave. In order to leave, which is the reason why I was hiding all my life, because I was made to kill. <laughs> And I did what I always did. I decided what would be the least harmful for everyone because I didn't care to live. I'd already been tortured. I didn't want to live. And I knew that if I was going to do that, I didn't want to live either. But I knew that if I wasn't going to do it, if I was going to say I'm not doing that, that not only would that child have been killed by them, but she would have probably been killed in a way that would have been more gruesome to show me what I should have done or because it was always about making choosing the right you know these sadistic games I had to just choose the right choice what they wanted so I knew that I chose what was in that situation the most humane choice and also that I had to do it so I had to get, put myself in that mindset and experience a release, um, an incredible high in that moment as well, which was why it was so hard to live with also. And then I was ready to go. Mm. And I had been tortured that night. I was not really completely alive. I was blue. Um, and... I had, when I was on my way out, 
this light I'd seen as light in front of my eyes a lot, which was consciousness itself, very sweet. I always came as a blessing. Um, had made me feel aware of things and had made me feel okay, benign, loving presence. Mm. Had made me feel things understand things before in other situations that I'd been in. And so I was just waiting because there was this consciousness of this, what was this light, consciousness itself. Did you feel that you were that light? No. No. I I felt it was an other Mm. presence, Mm. a loving, benign presence. I didn't feel it was me. Mm. And um, I... I was made aware of what was going on around me, though, and then this light came over me, and I did go to the other side and experienced in that moment, timeless and... and Then I really didn't want to come back. (laughs) Why would you? Wow. So, so it was a sense of timelessness. So it was. I mean, it was timelessness. It was information. I'm. I saw who was my teacher. Mm. Um, that I couldn't tell was a man or a woman, but just this incredible beauty mm. and these worlds upon worlds and the eyes, the wisdom of the knowledge of everything in the eyes, in a f- just a flicker of the eyes and. Um, and then the sense of humor. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> it must be funny to be able to see us and know yeah. everything. Yeah. So I was met with the sense of humor and, in fact, some irony, which is my own sense of humor. And I think those things that I'm most drawn to mm. um, in the world reflected for me to be drawn to this. But mostly I felt tremendous love like I've never felt before unconditional love Mm. Um, there were other beings there that were higher beings that were all had this these refined features of people maybe not people anymore Mm -hmm. just you know graduated from this plane and there was also my question towards the girl that I just had killed that she was there was some an, an answer that that kind of wasn't any of my business, but hmm. I just could know that she was okay. That she had just performed a difficult test, that she'd gone through a difficult test, and she did well. And I got a lot of. First of all, I was met with a question that related to a question that clearly had had in a past life that was now answered by the action I just performed. I guess not being able to understand how people can hurt and kill children. Mm. And what I was meant to learn for myself and maybe relating to my role somewhat, but mostly whatever it was that I was going to need so that I could strive to find this bliss, this freedom of feeling this love rather than 
through drugs as I'd gotten before or, or through the ecstasy and sex, which I'd also experienced, or yeah. through killing, which I'd experienced. Because that was the best I'd felt in those three ways of escaping this constant reminders of being powerless through all the abuse I'd experienced. Because it's that, you know, mm -hmm. it's all people you feel powerless and the frustration that builds up with that. The outlet that was given in having me kill someone is given a destructive channel for all these feelings of mm -hmm. anger. Mm -hmm. And so I was given this as a taste, like something to strive for. And I could also perhaps say that that experience was a lot more real than this. Yeah. And yeah. I knew it. And I guess I still kind of yeah, know it, but yeah. I don't really feel it so much anymore. Yeah. But it was clear that reality lies there, not here. And we were looking at my, um, my soul in this body, in this lifetime, and so forth, but not the real thing. Mm. Not mm. the end, not, only relatively true. Yeah. And, and important for us, especially, yeah. as we're in it, mm. to follow the laws. Mm. So you've just finished telling me, giving this incredible account of a near-death experience, something that, you know, not many people are fortunate enough to have had. And, and so I'm wondering now, how did you start to integrate this really profound experience into your life? I mean, how did this start to... Because, you know, I asked you a question about when, it, when the seeds of healing started. You, told, you gave this account, and now, yeah, how does that start to domino effect into your embodied life in the real world? Yes, thank or you. Or the, the, maybe the unreal world, but the one we're dealing with right now. The one we're <laughs> dealing with, which is all we've got. Yeah. So thank you for that question. Um, I um, was drawn to therapy. Um, friend was doing it. I liked her. She told me of this therapist. And after just a few weeks, that therapist challenged me mm. on something, on my perception and it was pretty brutal. Mm. But, and I was crying. But as I was crying, I thought, wow, there's, a, there's something real here. And I felt I did go until then. I was 25 or something. I never really felt anything to be real because I didn't feel anything. Mm. So I wasn't in touch with anything that had really happened. Right. Sometimes there were these glimmers of maybe fear or something. But... In those unconscious repetitions on either side, there was maybe emotion, but I didn't feel any truth. Mm -hmm. And so in this moment, when I was suddenly was thrown into this grief, I felt, wow, this is truth. This is my first experience of truth. I felt it. Wow. So it led me you know, deeper into the therapy, deeper into the past, and so this journey of going into the past with the help, of course, of yoga and meditation, which I all consider one part of yoga, including the, the therapy, therapy yeah. Yeah. Um, are all the yogic path of gaining awareness of the self. And I felt that this is really work of 
in the shitheads, you know? That's really what it is, is developing the, from uh, Satchit Ananda, is to really develop the feeling side and consciousness being directly related to feeling. Yeah. Because as I became more able to feel into the past, that's to say, to feel the pain of what happened, which I w wasn't afforded when I was young. I was never safe. So very gradually being able to make myself emotionally more safe and very gradually being able to feel the depth of the pain of what the betrayals mm. and what had been done to me, that allowed me to know myself better and better and better and to feel that I can be myself. Um, all of this was happening while I was still living under this cloak of this guilt complex of having committed that murder, which made me feel that I should hide. So I was doing all this healing work, and I was hiding out. And I had to anyway, because I really wasn't mentally aware or mentally healthy enough to assert myself in life, to do anything much, to go and get a job and hold on to it, or to really apply myself. I couldn't really do any of these things because... Were you sabotaging the, the jobs? Oh, yeah. Acting out or... Something mm. of the trauma would pop in at some point. Mm -hmm. And I did learn that I'm very good at starting things. So I, when I finally got like one of those little jobs that I was doing, when I finally got a job that was to start something because there was no job in place, I realized I'm not bored and I can do it. Mm. But the other jobs were so boring. <laughs> and then I was also not able to do the boring job because... I don't mind a boring job today. And sometimes I'd love to have a boring job. <laughs> but I, was, I wasn't able to apply myself because I was either too good for it or I was not good enough for it. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any sense of grounded. I wasn't grounded enough to do anything. Yeah. yeah. But that's the work. Um, really allowing feeling to... So that whatever I say, it's all been experienced. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I do love philosophy because I feel that I've, I live it. I think that for, our, for myself and the teachers or the, the liberation teachers, what we work on mostly is the yamas and niyamas for ourselves, yeah. not to teach to others, not to teach to our students, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for ourselves to really have that grounded start. Um, like, let's try to ourselves live within these parameters so that we can be grounded and we can form the bridge there between our trauma, which is a psychology that doesn't allow us to live the yamas and the niyamas, and the higher steps. Yeah. I really like what you said a moment ago about, you know, to get to chit. Yes. You have to go through the shit. And, and it made me sort of think about, which is something that I think that we're kind of segueing into, is, uh, you know, because chit is translated as consciousness or awareness. And, 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 I, and I so agree with you. You know, I think that there is a lot of people who go into spiritual practices often go into spiritual practices as a replacement for therapy. And as a result, they cling to and attach themselves to often regimes of, 
of thought that are very um, escapist. I mean, it's like, you know, it's really, it's offering you a road out rather than a road in to your feeling and your emotion. And, and I'm wondering, and it's sort of something I haven't, uh, or this is making me think about in a particular way, is that I'm wondering if the translation of consciousness you know, we're talking about consciousness being very intimate with the experience of feeling and moving into the feelings and through the trauma. But I'm wondering if because consciousness is translated, you know, this word consciousness in the West has generally been associated with some kind of thing of the head that we've misunderstood it Absolutely. in a certain kind of way. Absolutely. And the translation that I have of the um, uh, Sankhya uh, system actually translated as feeling and consciousness mm. both mm. and um, I think that's accurate and yes we don't understand consciousness to have anything to do with feeling because we're so talking about Purusha Purusha is, yes. is feeling and consciousness uh, no shit particularly ah. in Purusha ah, I see as feeling and consciousness okay both um, in the, one of the very first sutras mm -hmm. of that text mm -hmm. um, so but we we um, are so attached to reason, yeah. and you know, science is 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 really God, isn't it? Oh yeah. So, scientism is the new religion. Scientism, I like yeah. that. Yeah. Scientism. Yeah, that's what they call scientism. Is like the word for the people who believe that science, as a practice, has somehow got a grasp on absolute truth. Is that's that's like scientism as an ideology they they call it. Yeah. But isn't it true that scientists can only discover what's already been in place from the beginning of time? Yeah, and they're all and I mean and, and any Hopefully. you know scientists do do work on a narrow you know with a narrowly prescribed set of phenomena yeah. and then and then scientists then will extrapolate and philosophize on those experiments but that's just a narrow understanding of reality and it, it doesn't you know it's a it's a longer question there's a whole episode we could do on this <laughs> but like you know but science should be a great place to start doing the practice of yoga as a science that's applied to the self sure and that we can just use ourselves as a guinea pig mm -hmm. and we can you know practice those techniques and see where they lead us yeah. what they yeah. do for us yeah, it should all be experience. It should be experiments. Experiment. It's like even with, you know, with a with the meditation practice. It's like people don't want to do it, or they think they should have, you know, an immediate result. And it's like, no, you have to sort of, you know, you experiment with this for a while, and then you know, you go back after a number of experiments, and you look at the, you know, you look at the things that you've you've come up with, and and see if it has been beneficial to you. Yes, and it's like the work we do, for example, has very great impact, and I know that. But we have to measure it mm -hmm. because we need funds. Yeah. <laughs> and so to measure it immediately takes away from the experience for our teach for our students, mm. teachers and students. But because now we have to come in and we have to be a little bit more um, invasive. Yeah. And we ask them things. But so uh, the world being so hung up on science. I mean, it is a patriarchy, clearly. Mm. Yeah. Right. As a woman, I know that. <laughs> And we, um, so reason is generally associated with being the, the positive um, major quality of man. Oh, yeah, right? for sure. Whereas um, feeling mm -hmm. is often the, may, may sound terribly stereotypical, but is often the positive quality that is mostly associated with fe the female, or we right. can say the female aspect. Yeah. So... 
this cold reason, like reason without feeling is cruelty. Mm-hmm. And I, I experienced a lot of that. And then feeling without reason is insanity. And I experienced some of that too. Yeah. Um, but that there would be in our world, you know, uh, what I share today, um, I'm not afraid to be thought of as crazy, but I shared something that's not measurable. Yeah. It's not from of this world. And of course, a lot of people have experiences um, that are not measurable, and they know it's true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's always some someone that can come along and negate that. And this preponderance of reason in our society makes it the whole world so imbalanced and so cruel, perhaps, because there's no focus on feeling as consciousness and on understanding emotion, Mm -hmm. understanding our feelings. Because psychopaths who rule the world are not in touch with their feelings. And that's sort of the model that we have. Yeah. That the scariest person is still the one we have to look up to and listen to the most. <laughs> the gang mentality is sort of the world mentality. Mm. And it takes a lot of courage to fight it. Yeah. And so... And to be able to sit with it and, and not try to rationalize yourself out of it. I mean, I know this is my... This is my experience with feelings that are overwhelming, is that I, my desire, because I, you know, I mean, I have two master's degrees in Western philosophy. What could be more reason-based than that, right? And, and so I, you know, and I, and I have done work enough, therapeutic work, and also, you know, looking into similar, you know, philosophies as yourself that I understand, like, the importance of affect and emotion, but I still catch myself, you know, trying to get out of it. It's like, this is unreasonable. Why do I have this feeling? Like, why don't I, if I could just... me too. Yeah. If I could just intellectualize in a certain way, then I can move out of it. Absolutely. As a form, you know, so there's this, there's this knee-jerk response that I think so many of us have to evade and escape rather than move through. But I really, I have to say, I had no idea, and I have to applaud you for not being an arrogant prick, which is often what <laughs> <laughs> happens when you go that route, you know, when you study uh, especially Western philosophy, you know, that really sticks to people, yeah. and that really gets used as a shield. Oh my gosh. And um, I it's found... Intellectual, it's an in, it's a it's a power game. I mean, it's a it's a certain completely. It's I mean, completely. being like being in an argument with somebody who is who is a Western philosopher. It's like a game of like power, you know. It's, or Eastern philosophy as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think that um, the Ashtanga world kind of prides itself on the scholarliness of their guru, yeah. who of course was um, touching women mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. So there is that idea that. Um, the bookishness somehow gives you something. Mm-hmm. And in that, um, in that line of thought particularly, I feel that it's very much used as a way not to go into... To yes. Oh, totally. Not to deal. Well, I mean, I really... And I realized, you know, for me, you know, just to go into it for a second, since it's, I guess, a little relevant, is that, you know, it was, 
I realized eventually that I was looking for a spiritual solution, but I was looking for it in the most abstract ideas possible, which was me really trying to get out of my body, you know, was trying to, because I was such, you know, there were certain experiences that I had, and one could call them traumatic, I suppose, even though that sometimes feels extreme to me, but, but definitely experiences in my life that I was looking not to work through, rather, and, and find ways of, of getting above them in a certain kind of way. So, and, and, and Eastern philosophies, even though they can definitely be bookish just as much, and, you know, maybe this website as well can be a little bookish at times. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think that what, the, what it offers is that it does offer roads to embodiment. You know, that's why it's called embodied philosophy. Roads to embodiment that, that are not available in the Western canon in the same kind of way. Well, with any, you know, we're not really a society that values pain. So the first sign of pain... Um, I think it's natural to just not want to feel it. Yeah. Then that there would be so many places to go to and so much encourage, encouragement from the outside not to feel it is just too bad. Because um, if it if there were more awareness, I think that, and if if we could get to a place where we um, can change things enough so that we can at least understand that we can be safe mm-hmm. within that. Mm-hmm. See, I think a lot, a lot of us don't, are too afraid to go into it because there's really no safe place yeah. to go because of this structure that is really top-down. Yeah. Psychopath on the top and then everybody else in the middle. And then, you know, the prisoners maybe on, mm-hmm. the, on, the, on the bottom rung. But to um, create a more compassionate setting... Uh, where it's safe to not only experience pain, but to experience other things as well. Yeah. Uh, to go into the feeling and explore it. That it doesn't have to necessarily happen in a therapist's office. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think we, we, it seems like we need, more, we need more forums for that kind of an experience. Because, you know, especially in America, I'm sure you've, noticed we love we want it we're it's like the compulsion is to be happy just be happy and be fun you know and be joyful and like you know oh you got some problems you know mm, maybe we won't talk about them you know people are very no, people are not comfortable made comfortable by other people's problems you know and so there is this kind of like there is a, a socialization to be to not sit with the stuff, sit with the shit, because you're told to be happy all the time. And if you're not happy, then there must be a problem, you know? And so people think, oh, well, if I'm unhappy, then I have a problem. And, and people either go one of two, two routes, it seems to me, I'm sure there are many more, they either, you know, run away from it in some kind of an escapist way, whether it be by a hyperactivity or drugs or alcohol, or they attach to it, you know, they attach to it. It's like, this is my depressed identity. I am a depressed person, rather than seeing a road to healing through it. Exactly, because who is depressed when they're born? Mm -hmm. I mean, this state, and usually when you take away the addictions or the substances, there's depression. And then, and it is not a state of awareness, it's a state of pain, but maybe disconnected from the original cause of the pain. So it's important to understand that the depression is not... 
something you were born with. And, and again, in this world where we want to just si make everything science, it's very easy um, to trace any kind of mental illness back to hereditary causes or something other than perhaps that there was trauma. Mm -hmm. And usually, though, I found in working with um, a lot of traumatized people that there is, I have this sense because of my journey out from the, from the beginning in all those years that I had the privilege to really delve into the pain and delve into the go back to the cause and then see when I got to the cause, have this expansion happen and understand that this particular thing that happens and that traumatized me in this particular way, that formula works for everyone in yeah. that if that's the thing that happens and that's the result, I can understand that happening for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so that's how my understanding grew. That's how... I, the expansion happened from integrating all these different parts and then um, and then being able to recognize that in others. And I, all, I recognize trauma. Often when people are not aware of their own trauma, I see trauma there. Mm. I don't see it in everyone. I mean, not yeah. big trauma. Yeah. Uh, I don't see it in everyone, but I do recognize it often. What are signs of trauma that, that are very evident to you that perhaps wouldn't be evident to someone who hasn't experienced the same kind of trauma? Well, I think usually people who are drawn to an extreme physical practice, mm. let's say Ashtanga Yoga, <laughs> that, that there might be physical abuse mm. or sexual abuse, which is also physical abuse, in the background um, to need because it requires a lot of work mm -hmm. and it keeps you looking young mm -hmm. but for people to work that hard for really nothing because you're basically paying to do it and you know it's not like you're, you get to do a show at the end and yeah. show the world how how strong and flexible you are. You just do it every day. Yeah. Well, that was the question I wanted to ask, actually, because as soon as you said that, I sort of thought of dance and ballet. So what makes, what makes Ashtanga different from, from ballet in that sense? It, exactly. Yeah. That it's not it's to not a performance. express yourself and perform, for example. Um, there's no... like the, 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 it's, it's all about growing personally except that the focus constantly stays on the physical mm -hmm. and with that lineage with a guru who was misogynistic and um, was not respectful um, it requires for a person to be in that in that group to split off mm. emotionally mm -hmm. if they're attached to Patabi Joyce as like say a father figure then there is this large split in consciousness that needs to happen in order to maintain that um, and to continue thinking of your guru as the person you want him to be, yeah. knowing that these things happened and yet not maybe be able to do anything about it. And that split in consciousness has to do with trauma. Mm -hmm. And the projection towards Patabi Joyce as... Um, this father figure, that's also connected to trauma. Mm -hmm. It's connected to parental figures, not to what a, uh, what we want a guru to be. Mm -hmm. 
like I've been on a path, but if there had been at any point any proof, and I'm not afraid to look at it, that my uh, teacher was was not in the body, but if the the rumors that exist, if they would have been proven true, I would have immediately left the path. Mm-hmm. This is Yogananda? Yes. Yes. I actually want to ask about this because I think this is interesting. So you were on a, you know, the panel Abuse of Power, which you at, we actually hosted on the website. Um, I, yes, can put, I can put the link. I think it's just embodiedfivetatvas.com slash abuse of power. And I'll put that in the show notes for anyone that wants to, to watch it. And Annika is um, one of the panel members in that discussion. Um, but one of the questions that's asked is, you know, is the guru, is the age of the guru, guru dead or does it not work in America and and I'm assuming and correct me if I'm wrong that you don't necessarily think that's true because you have a guru There's I have a guru so 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 let's talk a little bit about that because you know there's obviously a whole slew of 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 guru t- um, related scandals so you don't necessarily perhaps and this is my guess is that you don't necessarily think it's a problem of the function of the guru I think if Someone is enlightened, mm-hmm. knows God firsthand, <laughs> and has come to earth to spread that light. Uh, that's one thing. There are avatars, but there's a lot of false ones. Yeah. So I would want to check out the false ones and um, people who want to attract a large following who look for that. I mean, I have my issues with um, old white men, or old, you know, in this case, Indian men. I have my ish- my own personal issues from my, my experiences, so I have trouble respecting, you know, I don't give automatic respect to an, an old man just because of their status, obviously. But there were a lot of signs, and when I heard this woman at the panel... It, talk about what happened to her and found out that it was that so common mm. that he was doing this. He was married. He I, had no respect for his wife. He had no respect for women. He was doing this in front of everyone. Mm. You have to be very traumatized and reliving part of that trauma in that denial in order to, to be there. Yeah, I mean, I found the video of him of his assist that is now. Uh, yes. that I think somebody, uh, maybe it was Matthew Matthew Remsky, put it in one of his recent posts. I mean, I had never seen it before, and of course, I never knew Patabi Joy, so this was sort of before my time, and um, or at least you know, I was practicing yoga before I would have ever thought about going to India. But um, it was traumatizing just watching the video, yeah. the kind of assist yeah. that he was. Giving. Thing. I mean, I just can't even imagine. I, I, I think that uh, Jay Brown said there's no assist that requires for your penis. Oh yeah, to be for sure. <laughs> I mean, but not even that. Just like him laying his whole body weight yeah. on someone, I just can't imagine ever doing that to a student. Um, you know, I just like I was like my hamstrings were were screaming just watching the video. <laughs> well, there was that as well. Yeah, yeah. Besides, you know, in addition to the to the, but this you know this is a very um, this is extremely controversial. And actually, before I heard you talk about it, I had never, ever heard anyone talk about it. No, it's, very, it's, kept, it's a well-kept secret. It is, yeah. And, and so it's, it's a bit shocking. And, and so I'm wondering how much, since you started talking about it, 
just I'm curious how much resistance you've got because this community is very devoted. Yes. Very, very devoted to their I don't lineage. get resistance because I'm not in that community anymore, uh. even though I, of course, had to sort of... I have absolute cordial um, relationship with Eddie Stern, who's mm. my teacher and who's always... Um, who's, of course, one of the most decent people you can ever meet, mm -hmm. and also was very supportive of the work that I've done yeah. and was actually my fiscal sponsor mm -hmm. um, with Liberation Prison Yoga. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So have you ever talked to him about the abuse? I did. And I told him right away. And he received it. He wasn't skeptical or... Well, there's that split. He heard it. He heard me. He respected me. And then the next step is not taken. Right. He heard it. And he apologized mm -hmm. for his I'm sorry his you guru. experienced that. Yes. But then the accountability step, keeping right. someone accountable. And right. that's what didn't happen. Right. And, you know, everyone... I also understand that Eddie um, really loves Patabi Joyce and obviously had a very different relationship with him. Right, because he's a man. Because he's a man. So he, he was privileged... Yeah. To receive different treatment, but um, and 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 I interviewed Eddie when I first started in '97, and I asked him the question: Do you think that your guru Tabi Joyce is enlightened? And he answered it honestly. So it's a personal relationship, and yeah. I and I do respect Eddie tremendously. Yeah. And I also am not going to be quiet about Batavi Joyce right. because that's not what loyalty means. Right. I feel um, absolutely grateful for everything that Eddie has um, put in my way. And not without challenges, but very um, true and uh, good-hearted mm. and generous. Yeah. So with speaking about Patabi Joyce, is it, is it to give voice, to start to, um, to forge a space for those who have experienced abuse from him to come forward and to come together and to engage in the healing process? Is that the intention behind speaking about him specifically? Well, it happened to me. Yeah. You know, I wasn't, um, I wasn't raped by Bikram or I'd be speaking about that. Right. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh touched inappropriately by Patabi Joyce yeah. and it was a very upsetting experience and you know I was lucky enough to be far enough along in my own healing process that I was able to do something yeah. to help myself and to know that I that my anger was not I mean I still had some of course fallback and I still started feeling like there's nothing I can do I started to feel helpless I mean I did go through some, but I was far enough along in my healing that I didn't just do nothing mm -hmm. and just allowed him to continue to do it. Yeah, yeah. But I think people who go start doing Ashtanga yoga today should know, mm -hmm. absolutely, mm -hmm. because there is a myth being perpetuated. Yeah. So you go do Ashtanga yoga and it's really great, right? It's really great. But I think it's important to know uh, what's... What started that? Someone who, as we know, Tabi Joyce himself was um, very badly physically abused and 
can only guess his relationship to women, what that's from. So we have to know that this was a man. It was, was an extremely flawed man. It was someone who um, clearly was a power addict and was not able to control himself um, to you know, practice ahimsa while teaching Ashtanga Yoga, which is you know, a very pretentious name to call your, your yeah. personal it is. yoga uh, you know, form. It really is. It's caused a lot of confusion. Yes. What is it now? Yeah. What is Ashtanga Yoga? So um, while, those, while, not, while we don't even practice meditation, I mean, I was doing it for many years, and meditation was never part of my practice, and there was this whole thing that you have to be in third series and invited, I mean, <laughs> invited to sit in the groups in the morning and to do the meditation. I don't know. <laughs> I was never invited. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, in the Ashtanga Yoga system, I mean, even looking at the Yoga Sutras, it's very obvious that this is a this is a meditational system, and asana is not at all the focus or the the most important aspect of the path. You know, so it's yeah, it's you're right. It's it's a very pretentious decision to name what is at heart a physical practice. I mean, they would argue not. They would argue not, of course. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. They would argue not, but when you're in the room, anybody that ever, I mean, when I was practicing, and I'm, again, I'm just speaking from my experience, what I observed was when someone was, who had an advanced practice, that person did get a lot of attention, and people would stop and watch their own, stop their own practice to watch somebody get in a very difficult pose, and... Um, you know, there was the fact that you have to wait to get the next pose until your teacher tells you, you, you you're ready, yeah. rather than you decide what you want to do, uh, which is not empowering. Um, so again, there were a lot of things in the, the system that tells me that it is a physical practice, mm-hmm. that the focus is ultimately on physical poses and perhaps on philosophy as well, but not on really dealing with what may be coming up during... The, during, because of the power, the the, the legacy of misogyny, but also a legacy of power, which makes it, you know, you have to do certain things, you have to maybe suffer humiliation, but then you get to be in power, and you get to be on the other side of that coin, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. you get to maybe humiliate your students, or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but I've seen a lot of Ashtanga teachers just go kind of flip that coin, and uh, be, and be part of them. Be part of that sort of lineage club. of club. Yeah. 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 Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. We're, we're sort of nearing the end of our time. Um, but I guess I wanted to just ask you, because I wanted to talk about this a little earlier, but, um, but I would love to sort of hear, you know, what from... What aspect of yoga philosophy... We talked a little bit about Ahimsa, obviously, but what aspect of yoga philosophy has really been illuminating for you on your own path and like really sort of informed this healing process? Well, as I said, um, I'm in Self-Realization Fellowship, mm-hmm. which is the organization that is um, that Yogananda founded yeah. in the early this century, early, early uh, last, century, last century. And so I've been following that and it's for how long now 
since 93. Wow. Same time I started physical yoga practice as well, which was always separated. You mm-hmm. know, I was doing the... So SRF comes with uh, lessons. Mm-hmm. And it's always in very simple language. So it's practical. Um, however, I feel that I can open any book that uh, was written by Yogananda or transcribed uh, speeches that he gave, and I feel that I am in the presence of truth. It's very powerful. Mm. It's very, very vibrant. Mm. Um, I, he has c- uh, commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, for example, that has been um, just extremely enlightening. Mm. But I can just take a small portion, and I can really delve into it. Um, because the best way to study it is just to like hold, hold the thought, your meditation. Yeah, something very just like a sutra or a line. Yeah. And um, without his commentary, I wouldn't really. I, I remember being young and wanting someone, you know, because I grew up in a Catholic country, and so I remember wanting uh, someone to explain it because I realized that the priests were just n- not making any sense to me, mm-hmm. and. Um, I I thought there must be something to the Bible, but I don't really get it at all, and I don't really know anyone who does. <laughs> so um, I found that in Yogananda's words. I found I found he also has um, an expose on the New Testament, mm. or on the Revelations. Oh wow! The Second Coming of Christ. Huh. It's called. There's a commentary on the Revelations, like the last book of the Bible. Yeah. Wow, that must be really interesting. It's the New reading. Testament. It's the whole New Testament, but I, you know the Revelations particularly are mind blowing. Wow, are, <laughs> really you, allow, are you allowed to send that my way, or do I have to sign up for the self realization? No, fellowship? you know that's available absolutely. Really? Yeah, oh my gosh. and there's I would a, love to read that. a there's a there's a small book that I think it's the 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 Yoga of Christ is the the small version, and oh. then there's like a the two volume version. Wow. I'll send you whatever you want. Amazing. Yeah, send it my way. Okay, so we're going to squeeze in a short bit about... This was recorded after our initial interview, but we wanted to start up the recording again and just talk about duality and non-duality. So what are the stakes here in this distinction for you? So very simply put, we live in a realm. This earth is in a realm that is in time and space, and it is held together by opposing vibrational forces Mm -hmm. so we are necessarily part of the laws of duality we can't escape them every law that is uncovered is essentially a law of duality so um, without either one without love or fear we um, wouldn't really be able to maintain our our body or anything physical so we're here we're subjected to these laws and uh, trying to get out of it to the non-dualism, which I had this little glimpse when I was being transported to yeah. the other side where uh, there was no duality and there was no time or space, which is where we go at death. It's basically all we want to do is we want to just really, um, you know, we're, as we're born, so shall we die. That's really it. That's duality. Everything has its opposite, mm-hmm. and there's no experience in life that doesn't have its opposite. Mm-hmm. So we, we want to acknowledge it, and then from here, we can go to try to 
get out, which is, you know, not an easy task. Yeah. But... But do you believe it? Do you think that it's possible to experience the kind of timelessness that you experienced in a near-death experience while living? Absolutely. Mm. Isn't that the whole point of dying while we are conscious? Mm. Mm. Yeah. To consciously leave the body. Yeah. To bring our consciousness to the door of that the light may be that door. Mm. That light supposedly, no, this is like... you know, repeat, but supposedly is the reflection of the door. Supposedly is at the medulla oblongata, yeah. And so that light in the, the the third eye is the reflection, supposedly, of that door. Mm. And so we see that light when we when we die, or sometimes you just see it in meditation. You can just lift your gaze, and you can sometimes see it. Wow, you've experienced seeing that door in your meditation. I. Not in my meditations necessarily, but I do see a light mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. And it always comes as a blessing. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I haven't been able to bring myself through it. Well, take me with you when you do. <laughs> that would be my, my, my ardent desire. Is or when to you, after bring, you go through, come back to and bring, take us with you. To bring others along. But I need my um, uh, grace. Yeah. It's not up to me. Right. And that's the thing that we, you know, ultimately we want to do all the work that we can do on our end. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately we, we have to leave it. It's a matter of grace. It. We still have to, we still have surrender. to surrender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Well, Annika, this has been really um, um, quite an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your time. I'll have to have you come back again so we can talk about liberation prison yoga which oh, i wanted we didn't to talk, talk more about, about but i'm going to let you say it's just okay. mention now that this is your project so that you know go ahead and mention that and anything else you're doing that, and uh, websites that you want to send people to projects you're working on sure so um yes i did start this organization as you said liberation prison yoga and we bring uh, trauma-informed yoga into the prisons by connecting and creating a sense of safety uh, for our students through meditation, f- first and foremost, and uh, trying to allow yoga to be the incredibly healing practice that it really is to a- as much as possible. And um, I also train our teachers, which was also, you said, in the opening. And our website is just simply uh, liberationprisonyoga.com. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much, Annika. It's my pleasure. Yeah. It's really nice talking to you. It's really nice talking to you, too. It's been such a pleasure, Annika. We'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Wow. Well, I hope you enjoyed that incredible interview with Annika Lucas. If you'd like to um, learn more about Annika, you can check out Liberation Prison Yoga, liberationprisonyoga.com. And then if you're interested in watching the abusive power panel that Annika was a part of, uh, Embodied Philosophy did record that panel, and it's available on our website at fivetatvas.com slash abuse of power. That's abuse dash of dash power. F-I-V-E-T-A-T-T-V-A-S dot com slash abuse dash of dash power. Until next time, friends. Bye-bye.